Welcome to this podcast series from the GSK SLE Educators Network for PrimeEd. Throughout this three-part series, we will be hearing from rheumatologist Dr. Sarah Sheikh and primary care physician Dr. Vera Oyabere on some of the major topics and challenges surrounding lupus care. These podcasts represent the opinions and experiences of the speakers and may not represent the views of GSK. This is a non-promotional disease education podcast intended for healthcare professionals only. This podcast is not intended to offer recommendations for administering GSK products in a manner inconsistent with approved labeling. In order for GSK to monitor the safety of our products, we encourage healthcare professionals to report adverse events or suspected overdoses to the company at 888-825-5249. Dr. Sheikh is a consultant for the GSK Educators Network, has served on advisory boards for GSK, Honoria Pharmaceuticals, AstraZeneca, and Lilly USA, and has received grant funding from Pfizer. Dr. Vera is a consultant for GSK. Today, Dr. Sheikh and Dr. Vera will be discussing the importance of early diagnosis and management of SLE. So Dr. Sheikh, where exactly does this name lupus come from? The word lupus is Latin for wolf. And in the 18th century, when lupus was starting to be recognized as a disease, it was thought to be caused by the bite of a wolf. And this may have been because of the distinctive facial rash that's characteristic of lupus that can often leave uh, a bite-like imprint. And we know that lupus is not a new disease. In fact, it was believed to have been described by Hippocrates around 400 BC. Uh, thankfully, we now know that lupus is not caused by the bite of a wolf. So wolf, huh? Lupus. Interesting. What types of challenges do providers encounter when making the initial diagnosis of SLE? One of the most challenging aspects of diagnosing lupus is the broad range of manifestations and clinical presentations, which can impact almost any organ and system of the body. And lupus has often been called the great imitator or the great mimicker because its symptoms can mimic those of other diseases. And also important to remember that the symptoms can sometimes not all be present together and can evolve over time. Additionally, there's really no single test that's used definitively for the diagnosis of lupus. And it's typically a combination of clinical symptoms, a physical exam, and specialized laboratory tests, and sometimes a need for a biopsy, for example, of the skin or of the kidneys. And together, this, this reflects that oftentimes the disease can be misdiagnosed initially. And we, ha we know from data that approximately 70% of patients are initially misdiagnosed with lupus. Another reason why it's so difficult to diagnose and can be challenging is because the course is so unpredictable. It waxes and wanes. There's periods of flares. Um, sometimes you see organ damage or disease progression. Even in the early stages, especially, it's difficult to achieve a differential diagnosis. You have a patient that comes in with arthritis. Is it rheumatoid or is it some other particular arthritis? So yeah, you see a patient with a, a positive ANA. Does that necessarily mean they have lupus? That's a great point. A positive ANA doesn't mean that the patient necessarily has a diagnosis of lupus. It just means that that test warrants further interrogation and investigation. We know that most lupus patients have a positive ANA, 
but most patients with a positive ANA don't have lupus. And in fact, approximately 20% of normal healthy individuals have a positive ANA. And a positive ANA can also be seen in other conditions such as thyroid disease or liver disease or other autoimmune diseases. A further source of complexity is that multiple autoantibodies associated with SLE can appear many years before the diagnosis of SLE is made. So we know that autoantibodies precede the development of clinical symptoms in majority of the cases. So what that means in clinical practice is that patients can sometimes present with autoantibodies, but really not uh, all of the clinical manifestations that would lead to a diagnosis of SLE. But I always remind myself and everyone else that we treat human beings and really not any particular lab test. So really um, paying attention to what is most impactful to the patient in front of you is really the best way to guide next steps. So I completely agree. Because although we have many uh, classification criteria, we even have tools that we can use to diagnose lupus, we still have to validate that diagnosis. And that's where that multidisciplinary approach comes in. You're absolutely right. This is an important point because the American College of Rheumatology or the ACR classification criteria are not diagnostic criteria. They have been developed to identify groups of patients for research purposes and for clinical trials. Diagnosing and managing lupus often requires a multidisciplinary team approach that involves the patient, caregivers, and multiple healthcare professionals. Depending on the organ system that's involved, this could be a partnership that involves multiple subspecialists with the primary care provider. The absence of clear diagnostic criteria is one of the challenges that we face with the diagnosis of this disease. It's so comforting to hear you say that because we find that most of these tools available to evaluate disease activity are oftentimes way too time consuming for clinical practice. So as a primary care practitioner, how do you make sure that you keep SLE on your radar in the primary care setting? So there are a couple of red flags that I kind of look for. You're looking for signs of inflammation. This may be um, lab work. So you may see an elevated HSCRP or you see dermatitis or uh, these, you know, kind of that butterfly rash. And so that will give you insight, but it doesn't always present that way. So Dr. Vera, what are your thoughts on referral to subspecialists once SLE is suspected? So as soon as I suspect SLE, I want to communicate with my rheumatologist. I want to go ahead and send that referral because early detection is going to prevent disease progression. Absolutely. And collaboration and communication is so critical in this process. I so appreciate when primary care providers have someone that they suspect has a high disease activity or an urgent question that they pick up the phone and reach out to me in addition to a formal referral. Yes. Yeah, so what are some of those consequences that you see when the diagnosis of SLE is delayed? A major consequence is that patients whose symptoms evolve from incomplete to complete SLE, for example, may have already accrued irreversible organ damage by the time they meet the criteria for full SLE diagnosis, particularly for those patients who develop SLE at an older age. 
This reminds us and demonstrates the need for better tools to be able to detect patients who are likely to go on to develop full-blown SLE as early as possible with the goal to really prevent accrual of organ damage. Yes, this is so important because those who have organ damage at the time of diagnosis, you see that they accrue further damage. And this is likely to have a, a greater negative impact on their health as a whole and their quality of life. So being able to detect and treat these patients before that damage starts um, could li be life-changing. And we know that rates of organ damage in SLE are very high, with 30 to 50% of patients developing organ damage within the first five years of diagnosis. Although it should be noted that some of that organ damage that occurs after diagnosis can also be a result of toxicity from medications, particularly corticosteroids. So, Dr. Sheikh, given the difficulties we see in obtaining the diagnosis of SLE and that organ damage is often already absorbed by that stage, what factors do you consider when evaluating treatment options for lupus patients? Any decisions about treatments and the patient's health should be made through a process of shared decision-making. So the most important factor to me is really what's most important to the patient. What are their goals and values and how do we align those with our treatment goals as the treating providers? And in SLE, we know that the important pieces are controlling disease activity, prevention of flares and organ damage, avoiding toxicity from treatments, and eventually improving health-related quality of life. So in particular, for example, not just think about treating an acute flare, for example, with corticosteroids, but really think about disease-modifying long-term therapies uh, that will improve outcomes and symptoms while preventing further progression. And then I always tell my patients, once their disease is well-controlled, our goal is to make sure we have them on the least amount of medications to keep their symptoms under control. But most SLE patients will require medications uh, throughout the course of their disease, which is usually lifelong. So I, I always want to make sure that I'm having constant communication between the specialist and the patient, creating a triangular approach to providing care for that patient and ensuring medication adherence, ensuring um, that there's less likelihood for disease progression. And so having a rheumatologist to discuss with in regards to treatment and even discussing if there's been uh, adverse effects of that treatment, as oftentimes we're doing those routine labs to follow up on those other chronic diseases or comorbidities that these patients may have. And so it's always um, important that we have a good team um, together to really provide the best care for our patients. As we've discussed in our conversation today, because of the improved understanding of lupus, the prognosis for patients with lupus today is brighter than it has been in the past, but it really relies on all of us as healthcare providers working together to identify and diagnose the disease early and to make the appropriate referrals early so that patients have better outcomes. And as we all work together to unravel the mysteries of lupus, I feel like there is continued hope uh, because we now have more targeted and less toxic therapeutic options that have the potential to help patients. 